privilege to be in the pulpit. As you know, Keith's in Israel, traveling around, seeing all the sights. Um, we got some pictures from him this week. He's actually had the opportunity to baptize a few people in the Jordan. And so uh, he's just having a neat, neat opportunity. I know he is so appreciates the church coming alongside and uh, celebrating his ministry and allowing him and his wife to take part in this trip. So while he's gone, you've got me. And so you've got about three weeks. We're going to do a little kind of mini series here. Um, I've titled Collide. And it's just addressing issues surrounding God and family and culture. And so some things that have just kind of been rolling around in my head as the, as the youth guy here, as a guy who works with families, and just I think I have some things that will hopefully challenge you and will also hopefully encourage you as we look to God and His Word. And so this morning we're going to be in Joshua chapter 4. We're going to look at the last few verses of Joshua chapter 4. And while you turn there, I'm just going to encourage you to, to think about a word or two, and maybe you're going to jot them down on the side somewhere, just kind of keep them in your memory. What I want you to think about is either your kids or their kids, okay, the fu- a future generation that are descendants of you. How would you want them to be remembered? If you had to pick a word or two or three, How would you like them to be remembered? What might their legacy be in a word? Uh, So, for example, you you might choose the word virtuous because you're hopeful that the generation two down from you would have been taught and known the values uh, that you taught them, and so they would be known as a virtuous generation. Just kind of let that roll around in your head. Like I said, we're going to be in the book of Joshua, chapter 4. The reason why I have you think of a couple words is because we actually have some insight into the second generation past Joshua, so the generation of his grandchildren. If you know anything about the biblical man Joshua, you know he was a godly man. He was a faithful man. He was the one who God appointed after the death of Moses to take the nation of Israel from wandering around in the wilderness across the Jordan and enter into the promised land. This is Joshua. And so what I want to do is I want to show you in Judges, you won't turn there, I've got it for you. I want to show you in Judges the legacy of Joshua's grandchildren's generation. Okay, and I want maybe you have a word or two that you're thinking, yeah, I want my kids to be known for this. I want you to listen to see if any of those words show up in this text. Okay, I'll read it for you. It's what it says in Judges 2 about Joshua's grandchildren's generation. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them and provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals in Asherah. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord has sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Any of your words show up there? 
Do you want the legacy of your grandchildren to be evildoers, idolaters, people who angered God, who are sold into slavery and described as a people in great, terrible distress? I would hope not. I would hope not. Are you surprised that this is the generation, just two generations past Joshua, this godly, faithful man? How does that happen? How in just two generations is this the legacy of Joshua? Well, the short answer is found in verse 10, and the long answer is going to be the rest of the sermon. Okay? Verse 10 tells us this. It comes right before that description. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. They died. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. How did it happen? How was the legacy after Joshua 1 that abandoned the Lord, served and worshipped idols, the gods around them? They grew up not knowing God. They grew up not knowing the things that God had done. And with a generation, within a generation, we see the people of Israel, they forget their identity. They capitulate to the culture around them. And they become a people in terrible distress. Now, it doesn't really matter who you are in this room. I think we can agree that is not what we want for our children or their children after that. That this is a future that we want the next generations to avoid at all costs. And so the point this morning is not to rail about that generation and talk about all the mistakes that that generation made. What I want to do is take us back and to consider how we might prevent the future generations of our church and our people to be like this generation we see here in Judges chapter 2. Because what I would like to challenge us with this morning is that I think we're facing a lot of these same issues today. And we ought to be asking ourselves some hard questions When it comes to leading the next generation, what will be said of our children and their children after that? Will they compromise to the world around them? Will they fall away from the truth? Will they even know who God is? My hope is that you realize the seriousness of these questions. And that we can learn from this example here in Joshua. So now we'll begin the long answer. How does this happen? And more importantly, how can we prevent it from happening with our children? How did they grow up not knowing the Lord? And knowing who Joshua was, I think he he would be so surprised to hear that this is the legacy of his grandchildren's generation. And the reason why I know he would be surprised is because Joshua gave the next generation specific instructions so that this would not happen. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Because I think that these instructions that Joshua gave that were not followed will be key for us as we talk about influencing the next generation. So will you pray with me as we look at the text briefly? Dear Lord, I pray you bring clarity to this message, that you bring 
um, things to our mind that we ought to be doing, that we ought to consider, that you would challenge and encourage us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So the text this morning is the last few verses of, of Joshua 4. And just to give you uh, some context, Joshua 3 and Joshua 4 is the uh, describing the crossing of the nation of Israel from wandering in the wilderness to the promised land. Israel had been in captivity in Egypt under the hard hand of Pharaoh. God miraculously pulled them out, saved them from Egypt. And then because of a lack of faith, they ended up wandering around the desert for 40 years. That generation was destined to die in the wilderness. Moses had just died, and there was only two left from that generation, Joshua and Caleb. And God had charged Joshua with leading the people of Israel across the Jordan. And so what happens is the people are ready to cross the Jordan, and God tells Joshua, send the priests with the Ark of the Covenant first. And when the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant to the banks of the Jordan River, which was overflowing at the time, it was impassable. As soon as the priest's feet hit the water, just a little ways up that, that direction, the water stopped. The water flowed by, the ground dried and hardened. And the people of Israel miraculously walked across the Jordan River on dry ground. And when Israel had crossed the river, God told Joshua to do something. He said, Joshua, I want you to send 12 men, one man from from every tribe of Israel. I want you to go pick up a big old stone from the middle of that riverbed. And I want you to take those 12 stones. I want you to take them out from the middle of the riverbed. I want you to take them to where you're going to sleep tonight, that first night after you cross into the promised land. And I want you to set up a memorial. I want you to remember this day, Joshua, and I want your people to remember this day. And so that's what they did. And that's the setting of these last few verses of Joshua chapter 4, where Joshua explains to the people why God would have them take these stones from the middle of the river and stack them at a place called Gilgal. Before we get to Joshua's explanation, I want to throw two things out there for you to keep in mind, why I think God knows he needs to do this. Okay, Joshua is going to give us his explanation, but I think I got a little bit of insight before the explanation. The first thing is this. God knows we should all understand. We have a tendency to forget what God has done. And we just do our own thing. That's our tendency. We know it's the tendency of the Israelites. Not long after they were freed from uh, being slaves under Pharaoh, they were complaining and they were grumbling. They wanted to go back to slavery because they thought it was so great. They so quickly forgot what God had done for them. But don't we too? You ever forget what God has done for you? You ever neglect God's grace and provision in your life? We have that tendency too. Second thing I want to throw out there before we get to Joshua's instructions is that we have a tendency to become like the culture around us. And that's exactly what happened to Joshua's the following generations, they started to become like the culture around them. They started to worship these gods over here, the Baals and the Asherahs, and they forgot about who God was. And it's easy to see that and see how terrible that was. Um, but experience tells us that we too do the same thing. How quickly do we allow culture to dictate our priorities? 
what's important, what we want, our desires, our plans. How quick are we to complain? How often do we try to do things our own way? Because that's what culture tells us. This is why I think this message is extremely important for us because we are going to have to be extremely intentional in how we are going to reach, engage, and lead the next generation. Because if you haven't noticed, we're living in a culture that isn't, that is proclaiming that God doesn't matter. We're living in a culture that says, hey, you can, you can believe whatever you want. We're living in a culture that says religion is really toxic. That's the culture we live in. And we are going to have to decide who are we going to allow to influence and reach our generation? Culture? Or are we going to take the lead as God's people to reach and engage the next generation? So with that, Joshua explains why God has them set up these 12 stones. Verse 21, I hope you have it open there. It says, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? And we're going to stop right there. Before you check out there, I just want to make sure that we everyone kind of gets this. The text clearly says, When your children ask their fathers. Okay? I absolutely affirm and believe that the primary responsibility for the teaching in the home rests in the parents. Fathers, it is your job to ensure that your children are raised in the knowledge and understanding of the Lord. However, in terms of our sermon today and in the principles that are laid out here, I'm not just talking to fathers and children who are listening to their fathers. It's less about children asking their fathers and fathers teaching their children than it is about one generation teaching the next and one generation influencing the next. And so we're going to broaden the audience and take the application and say this is for one generation to the next, the recipe to how to make this thing work. And what that means is that this text applies to every single person in this room. If you're a grandparent or you're a parent, you understand, well, yeah, I've got kids. What if you're not? What if you're not active? What if they live far away? What if you're an empty nester? What if you're a single person here? I would tell you, you have a unique opportunity to influence. And you ought to be influencing and looking for ways to influence the next generation. Nursery workers, you are generational influencers. Awana leaders, youth group leaders, you are generational influencers. Do you have any neighbors? Do you know anyone who needs to know truth or experience love? You have the opportunity to reach the next generation. And let me also tell you that we're just not talking about little kids. You didn't know some of you are not in my generation. There are some of you that have come before me. And we're in different generations. But guess what? I'm the next generation. And you have an opportunity to not only speak into our nursery and our Awana and our youth group ministry, but there are families and couples that need your influence in their lives. I speak as one who has been invested in at this church. And we are so grateful for the influence of the generation that has come 
before into my life. And there are others in this room that need you to be looking for ways that you can influence them and their families. And if you're a teenager in here or you're even younger, I need you to hear two things. Number one, you are an influencer as well. It may be your little brother or your little sister or that just little kid that looks up to you just because you're just that cooler, older kid. You are an influencer. Believe that. The other thing I would tell you is a quote by Matthew Henry. Those who will be wise when they are old will be inquisitive when they are young. So if you're part of the youngest generation here this morning, listen well and commit to learn. So what are the instructions? The first instruction is found in verse 22 and 23. Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over. The first instruction is simply to remember. Joshua expected his generation to tell of their personal experiences with God. Right? There's no doubt that this was a memorable day. A once-in-a-lifetime experience for this generation crossing from the wilderness to the promised land on dry ground across a riverbed. But they were to tell of these experiences to their children so their children could hear and see just how real God was to them. These 12 stones were stacked over here in Gilgal in order to provoke questions so that it would be easy for people to explain to the next generation what had happened there. The next instruction happens at the end of verse 23, and there's only two. As the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. The second instruction here is to teach. And let me just explain this for a minute. When Joshua says, well, the Lord God dried up the Red Sea for us, When he says us, it's a little odd because who he's talking to, either A, wasn't born, or B, were little children. And what he's saying is not only are you going to tell the next generation of how you experienced this day crossing the Jordan, but you are going to teach your children the past, what you know to be true. And that's that God is faithful, that he keeps his promises, that we cross over the Red Sea as well as this Jordan River. What's fascinating about the timeline, we usually say that um, Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years. That's almost true. Israel crossed over the River Jordan five days short of 40 years. Why? Because God planned it that way. But there's something special in that. The day that Israel crossed over, it wasn't quite... 40 years because you know what they did on the yearly anniversary of their exodus? They celebrated Passover. Why did the people of Israel celebrate Passover? Because it was a way for the people to teach the next generation about their God. And so God is giving them a double object lesson. And he's combined, combining the experience of the present with the truths of the past. And so as the people of Israel cross over, 
the very same day or the next day, they are going to begin to prepare for the Passover. But the awesome thing about this Passover is this is going to be the first Passover that the promise is realized from 40 years earlier that God was going to lead them into the promised land. So they get an experience with God, and then they get to celebrate Passover as a fulfillment of His promise. He's combining, the Lord is combining, remember and teach, experience and truth. This shouldn't have been odd. I'm going to kind of skip over it here. But it was the same thing that Moses had tried to explain. You people are supposed to be teaching these truths to your kids over and over again as you go through life. That's Deuteronomy 6. Joshua not only expected the next generation to speak of their personal experience, but to also teach the truths of who God was. So then what are we supposed to do as Israel? Well, the truths remain the same. Thousands of years later, we take these principles and we have put them into our context. So what's our context? Well, we remember. We share our experiences with the next generation. The next generation needs to hear that our faith is personal. They need to hear how we have experienced Jesus in our lives in a real and tangible way. Coming to church is not enough. Taking your kids to a WANA or youth group is not enough. Just calling yourself a Christian is not enough. The next generation needs to hear and see from this generation stories of how God has shaped their lives. They need to hear those stories, those places, those events that have got you to the place that you are today based on who you know God to be. And you know a great way that you can do that? You bring them to a memorial. You don't have to stack up 12 stones to do that. But I'm not talking about going to find a statue or a museum. It's going to have to be personal to you. We just had a funeral for one of our youth workers on Friday. He was killed on last Monday. He didn't attend our church, but he was a faithful youth worker in our ministry over the past couple of years. He wore one of his memorials all the time. You know what it was? Christian t-shirts. I don't even like Christian t-shirts. Honestly. But you know what? I did like Christian t-shirts when Andrew wore them. Do you know why? Because he didn't just wear a t-shirt to wear his t-shirt that said Jesus. That was his way of actually engaging with people. And he used that memorial that he wore to talk to people about how Jesus had found him and rescued him and saved him and transformed him. And that was his way of reaching the next generation in a real and tangible way. The dude loved Jesus and he showed it and he wore it. Because he actually used them to share about his personal experience about how Jesus had changed his life. And it was evident in the way he walked and talked and lived. 
So I don't know what it will be for you to point to people towards Jesus, but it ought to be rooted and grounded in your experiences. Okay, I'm going to give you, we don't have a lot of time, I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Okay, I just looked around my office and grabbed a couple of things. Okay, I have these things in my office. I love these things. Okay, these are machetes. One's from the Philippines. One's from Guatemala. They're very cool. Okay, I like them. These can be memorials or they can be souvenirs. If someone comes to my office and they look at these things, they're like, oh, that's cool. I could tell them, yeah, it's really cool. Like, isn't this intricate? And, oh, we can have a sword fight. Do you want to do that? And we can talk about how beautiful the Philippines was and how uh, great the food was and the pineapples is, are awesome. And we can talk about all that stuff. That's a souvenir. You know when this turns to a memorial? I say, hey, let me tell you about this. Like, this is a cool machete. But you know what this represents? John and Hannah. You know who they are? They're missionaries. And you know what? When I see this, when I see this, I need to pray for them. And you know what? Maybe it's Ainsley, my daughter. And you know what, Ainsley? You know what we should do right now? I think we need to pray for them. It's not a souvenir anymore, is it? It's a memorial. And I can't talk about Guatemala and how hot it was and how hard it is to mix concrete. That's a souvenir, though. Or I can make this a memorial. And when someone asks me about this, I can say, you know what this represents to me? This represents probably the best mission trip that I've been on with our, our youth group and the amount of time we got to spend together as a group and dive into Jesus and relationships. And you know what I learned on this trip? I learned that God understands both English and Spanish, even though I don't. And we can talk about those things. You know what that is? Now it's a memorial. Why? Because I'm taking my experiences and I'm showing them how Jesus has made a difference in the things that I've experienced in my life. And so they're hanging on my wall or on my bookshelves, not because they're cool, but because they're memorials. And I want to share with you my experiences about how Jesus has changed and made a difference in my life. And I've got to show you one more. If you've been in my office, you may have seen this up on my bookshelf. It's just an eagle, and some people are like, oh, that's a nice Christian thing. You know, Isaiah 40, 31, rise up on wings like eagles. And yeah, that's, that's nice. Buy that at the bookstore. You can't buy this at the bookstore. You know why? Because it was my Aunt Bess, my great Aunt Bess. You know why? I keep it in my office because she was probably the most godly woman I know. And so when I see this, I can talk about Aunt Bess. I can talk about how she loved people, how she cared for people, and how she showed such a graciousness. Even though she's not here, I can look at this. And this isn't just a statue. This isn't a trinket. You could go buy an eagle at a yard sale for 50 cents. can't buy this. But this isn't just a statue anymore. It's a memorial. Do you see how it's different when it's now experience? And I can bring you into my experience? That's what the next generation needs to see. Something that's real. They need to hear these examples of you experiencing God in a personal way. And I have to tell you one thing before we get to the second truth here, how we do that. Some of you may this, this all this experience talk kind of sounds weird. And I would tell you, it is strange for you to try to talk to people about experiencing God if you haven't experienced God. And so what I tell you is don't seek some weird, strange experience, but go talk to someone. Open your ears and, and have a conversation and say, what are you talking about? And, and you talk about Jesus, like it's actually changed your life. Like, can you tell me about that? Ask some questions. Talk to someone who knows. Talk to someone who has a real relationship with God and ask them about how God has shaped their life and ask them about their experience. 
And we don't just remember and share our experience. We teach. We affirm the truth. Right? We can't just rely on our personal experiences because we have the danger of making them arbitrary. They need to be grounded in the truth. And just as the people of Israel would teach their children about the promises of God, we too must connect our experiences with the truth of Scripture. Which, just FYI, this means and implies that you know Scripture. It amazes me how many people who go to church and claim to be Christians do not read their Bible and have no desire to learn. That's a different sermon. How will the next generation know and learn the truth if this one doesn't? We must learn so that we can teach. So we need to build bridges between our experiences and what the Bible says. We need to be able to show how Scripture has influenced our life and how it is reliable and true and trustworthy. And so when we're talking about our experiences, we need to point out the faithfulness of God. And we need to point out the promises that He has kept in our life. It's not good enough just to put a Bible verse up on your living room wall. It's not good enough to buy a nice plaque at the Christian bookstore. It's not good enough to quote to me Romans 8.28 when things are going hard. When I have a week like this facing death and loss and someone wants to quote to me Romans 8.28 because they think it's going to make me feel better. That is meaningless to me unless you ground it in experience and in truth. And so what I hope to be able to tell our teenagers as we deal with the death of one of our friends and youth workers, what I hope to be able to tell Ainsley in years to come is that Romans 8.28 is meaningful to me because of Romans 8.26 and 8.27. And in Romans 8.19 before that, because it's talking about the temporal suffering of this world. That we don't just say all things work together for good in some trite way. But that when we say it, we understand the weight of Romans 8.26 and 8.27, which says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So as I talk to people about Romans 28, it's not just some fun verse that I saw on a plaque. It's something that I have experienced and felt as I walk through the pain and the suffering of especially these past two weeks. And so when I tell someone that God is good and all things will work together for, for good, it's grounded and rooted in my experience of walking through suffering. And the knowledge of the truth that God is using this for what is best and right and good. And even though I cannot understand it, I stand on the truth of, of Scripture and I can speak to the experience of this week that I have comfort in the midst of trials and suffering. Do you see how it's so much more meaningful when it's rooted and grounded in experience and truth? That's how the truth is conveyed to the next generation. It has to be real. And it has to be grounded in truth. This is what my generation needs. This is what the next generation needs. The last thing I would submit to you is that the next generation needs to be welcomed. 
They need to be welcomed into a church. So as we move from just personal application to just a church application, we need to make sure that we're welcoming to the next generation. So they have a place where they can hear and learn these experiences and truths. They need to be encouraged to live out their faith and walk in the truths of Scripture. But that will only happen if you and me are intentional in the ways that we reach out and welcome people into this body. There is a wealth of experience and knowledge in this room. We ought to be leveraging that to reach and engage the next generation. I'll say this as humbly as I can. The next generation doesn't need to know how you think their music is too loud or their lights are too crazy or they don't know how to dress for church or their jeans are too tight. We can agree with that one, right? They don't need to know that. And there's times for those kinds of conversations. But you know what the next generation needs to hear? They need to hear your story and your experiences and your wrestling with truth. They need to hear that they're loved. And they need to hear about a God who loves them and will transform their life. If we will do our job well, if we will remember and we will teach, we will see the last verse of Joshua chapter 4 come to fruition. Why will we set up these stones, Joshua? So that you can remember so you can teach, in verse 24, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. When we do our job, when one generation engages with the next, whoever that might be, inside this church or outside this church, the gospel is spread and faith is strengthened. So as we go home, so we live, leave this place. I just have two questions that I'm going to put out there that I would challenge you to, to really wrestle through and, and think about this week. First one is this. Have I experienced God in a personal way? We don't need any more fake Christians. Have you experienced God in a personal way? Through the personal work of Jesus Christ. And number two, how can I engage the next generation for Christ? Please hear this. The question is not, am I called to reach the next generation? The question is, who have you been called to influence and engage in the next generation? Not if, it's who. Will you pray with me? Dear Lord, help us see. Give us eyes to see the needs around us. Lord, help our faith. Help us experience you daily through your word, through what you're working in us and through us. Lord, help our experiences be grounded in the truths of your word, the truths of who you are, your character. Lord, we're here to praise you because we know the hand of the Lord is mighty. 
our prayer is that generations to come, that we would have a part in influencing these generations. We know you will build your church until you return. Please, may the Chapel of the Lake have a role in reaching the next generations for Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.